Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Have you ever failed to keep a promise? Like, uh, like think about a broken promise. It's something you just couldn't keep. So if you think about a promise, it's something what? That you say to somebody because you want to do something and you are hopeful that you will keep that uh, true. Um, actually, it says uh, a promise is a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. Um, as I thought about what a promise is and what that looks like, um, I, I was thinking about when I was a kid, and tell me if you remember this, because I thought about this this week, and I'm like, that's kind of weird. Uh, if you make a promise, and they say, well, is that true? And you say, um, I cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. What is that? Like, why would we do that? That is the worst thing ever. Like, why would you want to die and then stick a needle in it? Like, but that was a way to like make a promise uh, that we would say that's like, I really mean this. Or like the best promise that you could make was a pinky promise. Like that's where you, you know, you do this and you, and you shake on it with your pinkies because that's like a contract there that you can't break. That is a pinky promise. But I do remember that like if you, if you wanted to break a promise or if you didn't want to keep it, all you had to do was cross your fingers and like hold it behind your back because then you can make any promise you wanted. Then you'd be like, oh no, I don't have to do it because look what I did right here. Like, and you think about all these promises. Like I I hope that I would keep a promise. And when I give a promise, and I'm sure that you're the same way, like, we want to keep it. Like, and I was also trying to think of an example of, like, something that I really wanted to keep, but then I failed. So uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, we were, me and my wife were driving here to church, right? And we left the house, and my gas, our gas tank was on, like, the light was on right? So there's two types of people. There's people like me who believe you can drive all the way down to like there's no gas and you're driving on fumes. And then there's my wife who's like, no, it has to be full, like above a quarter, like three quarters of the tank, never lower than that, right? So we're driving uh, to the, like to work and she says, you need to get gas. And I'm like, listen, let's go to work. I promise, I promise that I will get gas when we leave. So we, we get done, we come to work, we work for a while, and then it's lunch, and then we get in our car, so we're so blessed that we get to work together, and then we get to have lunch together. And I was so happy to be with her that we just got in the car, and we drove all the way home. So we get home, and all of a sudden, I pull in the driveway, we had a great conversation, and I look at the, and I'm like, oh no, I forgot, like I totally forgot. I made a promise, and I forgot. So when we left, she was not happy. I looked at the car gauge, right, and we're lucky to have these these days, it's like, it tells you exactly how many miles, and it said 12. It said 12 miles to get to the, like, uh, until we ran out of gas. And it's 10 miles to the church from our home. So I'm like, I got it covered. Like, that's plenty. So as we go, like, the one thing I didn't count on is as we started to drive, like, the, it, it wasn't right. Like, it started dropping, like, fast. It was like eight, seven, six, and we're driving, and we get right down to Speedway, and I'm not kidding, it was on one. It said one, and I'm like holding my breath the whole time. And I pull in, and we made it, and I got gas, and I kept my promise. But she was not happy about it at all. 
So these kind of things, like we want to keep a promise, but we, you know, there's always things that we forget or we don't do. And if you think about from a parent's point of view, like as a father, if you have a child who comes up to you and says, listen, I really want you to play outside with me today. And like, you may be tired and you say, listen, I, not today, let's, let's do this tomorrow. We'll go outside and we'll play tomorrow. I promise. And you lay that down. That's a, I promise. So the next day, what happens? Of course, your, your child comes up to you and says, guess what? We're going outside to play today. And you're like, oh, I did say that, didn't I? And why? Because you promised. It's like a contract that they know because you did that. And you follow through and you do it. Now, as a parent, though, there are certain things that you do when you punish, right? So I would ask you, have you ever made a promise or ever set out a punishment and then went soft, like didn't keep it? Like, we talked about this. We had Parent Connect this past week, and we were talking about discipline as one of the things. I, I threw out the question, what's the hardest things about parenting? One of the things was discipline, and it's following through on discipline. Because what happens? If we say, listen, you, if you do this, you're going to be grounded for a month. And then what happens? Like, they do it, and then it's like, oh, I guess I have to follow through on that. You have to be grounded for a month. And then what? Two days go by, and you're like, well, really? Do they need to be grounded for a month? Like, we are go soft on those promises of punishment. Now, when we come to Scripture today, and when we talk about who God is and his character, I want you to take those feelings that you have that we put on us, because we are not perfect, and I am not good with promises, and I am not good with following through with punishment. But when we look at God, he is perfect. He keeps his promises in who he is. So as we look at today, we are going to see God's character, and that he always keeps his promises. And he is just in his punishment in what he does. Uh, and this is what we see in our text today. Our series that we've started here is called Just Love. It's all about what God's justice in this book of Nahum. So last week, what I want to do is tie this together because we left off in Jonah. And they are connected in a big way. So just to review just a little bit, Jonah, uh, he was a prophet who had a very rebellious heart. And as we went through the book... We saw that God asked him to deliver a message to Nineveh, a message of repentance. Um, go to the great city of Nineveh and what? Call out against it. And what did Jonah do? He went exactly the opposite way. He did not want to do that. He went to Tarshish. But God's plans were clear, and Jonah was thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish that was appointed by the Lord. He then prays. And then God speaks to the fish and what he has vomited up on land. And finally, finally, he goes and follows the instructions that God has given him and delivers the message. So Jonah 3, 4 says this. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the message that God gave him to deliver. And what happened to Nineveh? They repented. And do we see a happy prophet? We talked about this last week. No, we did not. He was angry um, to our surprise. He is displeased with what God's will was. Uh, Jonah had a rebellious heart to the will of God. The big idea last week was God is sovereign despite Jonah's rebellious heart. And our next step as we wrapped up the message was uh, love your enemy. We really looked at it through the context of who Jonah was, and, and that he should love and have mercy just as God has mercy on the Ninevites. 
So we now come to this book, which some call the sequel to Jonah. Now, Nahum is also a minor prophet, and we know little, little about him. Um, Nahum means comfort or reassurance is what his name means. And I will tell you that this is about approximately 100 years later. So it's a century later from what we saw in Jonah. So at this point, I will tell you, they have repented of their repentance. Like, what does that mean? That means if you repent, that means you turn away from your ways, 180 degrees, right? So they've repented of that, and now they are back as an evil empire in what they are doing. So the date of this book was written between uh, 663 and 612 B.C., just to let you know. Um, The major theme, if we are looking at it, Jonah, to compare, Jonah is all about God's mercy, Now, Nahum is all about God's justice, right? His just love. So it's the kindness and also the sternness of God as we come into this text. Now, there is a difference when you read the two books. Jonah is a narrative. It's written as a story. And Nahum is poetry. Now, it's very complex poetry, actually, if you study it. And there's certain patterns that he has done in it. Um, It's very, very interesting. And It is beautiful and descriptive language that he uses. And of the minor prophets, he is considered the poet laureate, which what does that mean? That means that he is revered and acclaimed for the way that he, for his language and how he writes. I read this. This is from the handbook on the prophets by Robert B. Christian Jr. It says, Nahum was a great poet. His word pictures are superb. His rhetorical skill is beyond praise. Um, just kind of showing where we look at this and to understand how he writes is amazing. He is descriptive and it is beautiful. So as we look at the text today, we will see who God is. What is his character? And uh, Nahum reveals God's character through this prophecy that he gives. So what's our big idea today? Our big idea is this. God's character is revealed through Nahum. God's character is revealed through Nahum. When we look at the big picture here, we see the destruction of the Assyrian oppressor, right? That's the Ninevites. So we see that that is what is going to happen. And we also see the relief for the oppressed, which is Judah or Israel. Now, it's broken into two sections in this first chapter. First of all, it's a psalm of praise for God's character. We see all this praise on who God is and what his character is. And then we see the outcome for Nineveh and Israel and how that's laid out. It's the justice or the verdict as we get to it. And as we look at this, we'll see why does this matter when we, when we dive into it as we study the scripture. And then how can we apply that to how we think and how we live? So I'll start out with the first two verses. Uh, Nahum chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Um, as we look at there, we see already you should realize that this is a stark contrast to the book of Jonah. It starts out there with an oracle. So what is an oracle? If we were to define that, What is that? It is a message. It's a statement that he is giving of a threatening nature, of of something dangerous or doom that is going to happen. It is a burden, is how it is translated. 
Um, it's a message from God. Now, this isn't from, it's not personal opinion from Nahum, right? It's not out of spite. He has been given this message to give from God. And actually, it says there, it is a vision. So it is a vision that he has been given on what's going to happen. And that is what he is to deliver. So Nahum is an uh, Elkishite. Uh, and really, that's all we know about him, and that he is a poet, and he is a great writer. Uh, so what is the first thing we see here about God's character, though? In the first line, or in the first line of verse 2, it says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. So the first thing I want you to take away from that is God's character is jealous. God's character is jealous. Now, when we look at this, a lot of times I hear words like jealous, and I think, well, that not that bad? Like automatically I think jealousy is bad. Well, as we look at who God is and his character, it is not a bad thing. It says, uh, so he is jealous, so then what does he do? So he avenges. And when you look at that, when we're jealous, we're jealous of what? Those we love. Why? Because the attention is taken away from God, right? God wants no other gods before him, and that is, we are to worship him in that way. So when our attention is taken away from him, right, that means he is jealous. So if we look at the jealousy, that's God's passion here, and the, the avenging is the action. The passion precedes the action. So jealousy precedes avenging. So he is jealous. Now we see this throughout Scripture. Exodus 25 and 6 says this, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, right there we talk about serving or bowing down to somebody else. It says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to my thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We see another example that he is jealous, Right? Those who he loves, he wants their attention. Also says he will give vengeance. So Psalm 94, 1 and 2 says this, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Right? That is his vengeance. And remember, just like jealousy, vengeance, I don't know why, for some reason, if you're like me, you think of vengeance, well, that's a bad thing. Like, that's striking someone down. Or the, No, this is a good thing, showing God, who God is in his character. He is jealous, and he gives vengeance. Now, if you look at this in the text, it says wrath two times. So he is avenging, and he is wrathful. It says, the Lord is avenging and wrathful, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, all the prophets, as you read through the minor prophets, or as if you study them, um, they're all uh, impressed with the characteristic of, of God that kind of lends to their message in what they write. And I'll give you some examples. Isaiah, it is holiness. Jeremiah, it is judgment. Uh, Ezekiel, it is God's glory. Micah is God's leadership. And Nahum is God's wrath. It is God's wrath. And we don't often think about God's wrath, do we? It's not something we are readily or, or put in our own perspective of who God is. Now, when we are hurt by someone or we want to have justice, we often what we do is we seek justice on our own. That's the way that we are. 
But it is not our job. So in Romans 12, 19 through 21, it says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. So in other words, instead of that, do the opposite. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So God carries out vengeance, not us, not us. Now, I'm not saying that there is justice that needs to be done in like the courtroom or if justice is served in that way, but I want you to think about it and God will ultimately carry out his vengeance. That is not our job. So it says, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Now, when you think about anger, and when I think about anger, a lot of times what we do is in counseling, I use the illustration that it's like what's driving the train, right? So if you're in a situation and you get angry at somebody, and what happens? The anger is what drives your actions. Like, I got mad, so I slammed the door, or I did this, or I did this. Why? It's because anger is driving the train. It's like what is pulling you along. And that is never good to have the emotion as the one that is driving the train. But since we are sinful, that is the way we react in those situations. But I want you to take that once again and put it over here because that's not the way God is. He doesn't react in that way. He is very controlled in his anger. God carefully controls his anger. Remember, passion leads to action. He is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. He doesn't have like, out, like, I think of like losing our temper. That is a perfect example. Like if you are so frustrated with what just happens, like I just, I lost my temper. Like I was out of control. Like that's not who God is. He is in perfect control. He's in perfect control. All right, let's go on to verse three. It says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So as we look at this, what do we see? The Lord is slow to anger, and we talked about this in Jonah. So what do we see here about God's character that is very clear? God's character is patient. God's character is patient. And this is a perfect example because he was patient with the Ninevites for what? For 100 years as he went, as he went to it to get to the text where we are today. He never explodes. He never loses his temper like us. It's, it's that sense of being out of control. He is always in perfect control. So we see God's character described throughout the Bible in this way. So in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, it says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, we see that this was uh, the scripture as we saw for Moses as when God, when the Israelites were worshiping a false idol. So God's um, character there was what? He is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, in Jonah, this was the reason, actually, that, that Jonah went the other way and chose to go to Tarshish. So Jonah 4.2 says this, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my, in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are, what, 
a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew God's character perfectly. He just didn't agree with his course of actions. But I tell you, I am so thankful for God's mercy, for his grace, that he is patient with me throughout my life because through my, pro- through my life, I have been sanctified. I make mistakes all the time, and I'm so glad for his mercy and grace through that. He gives time for repentance. He doesn't have to, but he does. And this is the good news Uh, This is the gospel. Remember, we are all enemies. The Bible says we're all enemies. Because of the fall, we are born into sin, right? And God made a perfect plan that he sent his son who who would take the debt, who would pay that price on the cross. And he is wonderfully, wonderfully patient with us. But I want to make this point. We are enemies, but we can be redeemed through Jesus. We are enemies, but we can be beautifully redeemed through surrendering to Jesus Christ. He is patient, but he is not a pushover. He is patient, but he's not a pushover. He says, by no means clear the guilty. So he will not let the guilty go unpunished. After this, it says, his way is. It says, His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. When we look at that, he is showing his power, what? Over creation and who he is. He says his power will sweep away the enemy in a whirlwind by his perfect control. So as we go on, we see that he kind of takes that thought, and then he goes into it even deeper. Nahum goes on to show his greatness in his power. So let's go on, verses 4 through 6. It says, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So we see this amazing demonstration that he has put forth of God's power and how powerful he is. He rebukes the sea. He dries up the rivers, right? It says, Bashan and Carmel wither. Bloom of Lebanon withers. So what does that mean? Why does he, why does he put that in here? Well, Bashan is known for pastures, beautiful pastures. Carmel is known for cornfields and vineyards. And Lebanon for forest. All of this lush and beautiful greenery and growth. But guess what? God can take it all away. He can dry it all up because he is all powerful. So what do we see here about God's character? God's character is all powerful. God's character is all powerful. And I don't want you to forget this because this is one of the things that if we're not Focusing on it, we're not thinking about it. We forget about his great and immense power in who he is. It says the mountains quake. The mountains quake. What is the largest thing that we could possibly, the largest um, thing on earth? It is a mountain. Well, guess what? God can move it and it can quake. It says the hills quake. And all of this, what? Shows his power in who he is. 
This is all through the psalm. Psalm 147, verses four and five, says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Like this idea of who God is in his power. We can't even fathom it. We can't understand it. And all creation, what, shows his majesty and who he is. Psalm 106, verses 7 through 9 says this. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet, verse 8, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. This picture of what God did at the Red Sea, at the Exodus, right? He split that wide open. Can you imagine the immense power and what that did? Not only was it dry, it was like dry like a desert as they went through it. What a great, powerful miracle. So as we get into the text, verse 8, there is a, there's two who's here. It says, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the heat of his anger? Um, as we look at that, these are rhetorical questions that he is putting forth. And uh, when he talks about this, uh, I want you to think about since he is great and powerful, God releasing his anger is terrifying, if you think about it. It is terrifying of the of the impact that he can have with his wrath because his wrath poured out like fire. Rocks are broken by him. So who can stand before God's judgment, right? All of us are sinners, deserving of God's wrath. An answer from Paul in Ephesians shows who. Paul asks, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? And I love this. Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 says this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, that when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Because of Christ, we can be saved. Praise God. God is all-powerful. And even that, talking about his greatness, according to the working of his great might, that what? He put this plan into place. He put Christ in, in that, that we could come to him in that way. God is all-powerful. So as we go on here, we see that uh, the language turns here. And it's a stark contrast then as we talk about Judah. So let's look at verse 7 here. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So he is, what is happening here? So he is assuring his people of safety, right? He is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And it also says he is a refuge, now, this would be a welcoming relief from what? From the oppression that they faced. When you look at the 100 years. So what do we see about God's character here? God's character is good. God's character is good. Right? He's a stronghold. He is a refuge, a place of safety. 
Now, if you think about what that is, think if you talk about a refuge and what that looks like, if you are inviting somebody into your home, right, if you are giving them safety and comfort, what, that is a very personal thing. You're, you're giving them refuge, and I want you to realize that that is what that looks like. Psalm 100, verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. He is good, and he is always good. Isaiah 25, verse 4, says this, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath and the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Now, this is a perfect picture of a refuge in a storm and what that looks like. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Draw near to him. That is such a beautiful picture of a shelter and coming underneath that shelter. Remember, it is close and it is personal. And that is the beautiful thing about God. It is a strong contrast of his wrath and his protection. So I would ask, is God your refuge? I hope that he is. This place of safety from distress. Now, I just want you to think about um, your regular lives, like in your day-to-day lives when you are worried or what you're worried about or things that are happening, where do you go? Where do you seek refuge? Are you trying to work it out on your own? Or do you know that you have a place of refuge to go to? He has given us a way for a personal relationship through Jesus, but you must surrender to him. You have to seek that refuge. Remember, God's character is good. God's character is good. All right, as we go on. Now we see God's plans for Nineveh. Now we see God's plans for Nineveh. Verses 8 through 11 says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of, his, of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now, as we look there, now as we see what this judgment and what, how the, the, the language has turned here, you see the word you is used in verse 9. What do you plot against? Now, you is a direct reference to Assyria, because if you look up that, it is the second person plural in, in uh, how it is translated. So it is directed at Assyria. So what do we see here about God's character? God's character is just. God's character is just. He will judge justly because he is a God of justice. It says, but with an overflowing flood. As it talks about this overflowing flood, as I studied this, I thought this was, a, you know, when you study scripture, like, wow, that's just, you know, something's like, aha, that is a, uh, great thing to study, because as you look at this, this overflowing flood, and even in the secular study of this, um, this is an illusion foretelling the fall of Nineveh by the Babylonian army, because what happened was, because of the rain, there was a flood in the river, which uh, broke down the wall, which the army was then able to penetrate 
the wall, which led to the defeat of uh, Nineveh. So we look at this, and in this, where it talks about an overflowing flood, it's a, uh, it's a parallel and a literal fulfillment of the prophecy. And that's just amazing to me that God does that. So his justice is also portrayed in Isaiah. Now, as we look at the book of Isaiah, and I've referenced some of it, there is a lot that is similar in the language. And I want you to look at the language here because it, it paints a, a beautiful picture. So Isaiah 30, 27 and through 28. It says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck, to the sift of the nations with a sieve of destruction, and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. Once again, beautiful language here that talks about a picture of God's justice and what he will do. Now, as we look at our text in Nahum, it talks about this untangled thorns and drunkards. Now, we look at that, and, and as he references that, all of this will be consumed by fire is what he's talking about. This powerful picture that he comes back to again and again of this consumed by fire. Now, we see that there is a dry stubble there that he is talking about. So what is that? What is, what is he talking about, dry stubble? Well, in a field, when, when the crop is gone and you see what's left there dries out, right? And so when it dries out, it is ready to burn. So what he is saying here is that they are so ready to be judged. It is ripe for burning. God's character is just. God's character is just. As, he, as we look there, it says, For you came one who plotted against the Lord. So who is it talking about who plotted against the Lord? Um, this is a reference, I believe, in 2 Kings 18 uh, to uh, Sennacherib. And uh, he was a king of Assyria, and he attacked Judah. And he attacked Judah. And I see this is a direct reference. We don't know for sure if that is what it is referencing. But if you step back and look, that the reason is clear the attack on God and his people is what he is referencing when he is laying down this judgment. So God's character is just. He is just, and we can count on that. So what is the verdict as we get to the close here? Verses 12 through 15, we see the ultimate verdict in God's judgment here. And I want to read through this because it kind of goes back and forth between um, the Ninevites and it goes back and forth to Israel. And I want to kind of piece that out just a little bit. So starting at verse 12, it says this, Thus says the Lord, so right there, you see, this is him and his judgment that God is proclaiming here. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Verse 15. Behold, upon the mountain, mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So looking at that, this is a back and forth statement to Nineveh and Israel. 
and what the judgment is and, and what uh, is going to happen uh, to God's people. So first of all, let's look at the beginning. So though they will be powerful and numerous, God will cut them down. This is his promise. He says, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down. You see, they are at the height of their power right now. So looking at this, God in his, you know, we talk about him being all-powerful. It doesn't matter how strong they are. It doesn't matter how big their army is. God will cut them down, and that is his promise here. So it says that Israel, uh, so Israel will be free of Assyria's oppression is what it, it, he is saying. So this idea of breaking the yoke. So what is a yoke? So when we talk about a yoke, it is often referred to as like uh, uh, on animals. Like when they pull something, it is over their shoulders and they are pushing as uh, they pull um, some sort of weight. Uh, I have also seen pictures of a yoke with uh, people having them on their shoulders and they carry buckets below. This idea of having this great weight on you. Well, he is saying that God, God is saying he's going to break that yoke of oppression. He's going to take that off, that weight off of them, and they will be free from it. Now, what's interesting there is he talks about them being afflicted. So it says, um, uh, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now, this coming back to that, that God has allowed Israel to be afflicted over this time. And he is saying, I have allowed this, but no more. It will not happen anymore. But I want you to understand that he let them be afflicted. Like, God was in control the whole time. So what do we see about God's character here? And this is revealed to us over and over again, even through Jonah and now in Nahum. God's character is sovereign. He is sovereign. God will bring them to judgment in his timing, in his timing. You know, even talking about uh, when Raleigh mentioned all the stuff that is going on in the news and even the announcement that Israel has um, declared war, like, that stuff can be unnerving when you start to think about it. But the good news is we know how it turns out. We know God's promises are faithful. And we know that he is sovereign above it all. And we need to rest in that. So verse 14 switches back to Nineveh. It says, the Lord has given commandment about you, right? So there's the you again. No more shall your name be perpetuated uh, from the house of your gods. I will cut off um, the carved image and the metal image, and I will make your grave for you are vile. So what we see there are three judgments that are pronounced that he is saying here. The first one is the king of Syria would be destitute of descendants, and that is what he's saying. No more shall your name be perpetuated, right? There's going to be no more descendants, and it is cut off. That's the first uh, pronounce, uh, the first judgment. The second one is about their idols, uh, of their gods would, what, be destroyed, and that is what he's referencing here. From the house of your gods, lowercase g, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. So their images, their idols will be destroyed. And the last judgment, the king will be put to death. It says, I will make your grave for you are vile. The three judgments pronounced right there. And then after that, we go back to God's people. And then verse 15 starts with behold. Such a beautiful thing. Behold, upon the mountains, 
the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, when we look at that, we see the word who publishes peace. So what is peace referring to there? It's talking about deliverance, right? Um, Israel's deliverance uh, from this. And we know that uh, Nineveh was actually um, destroyed uh, in 612 B.C. was when it was actually, uh, when they were conquered. So these are promises for Judah's restoration. What a comfort this is. Now, if we look at this, these are also echoed in Isaiah. So I want to go to Isaiah uh, one more time here. Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Right? He is their refuge. But it talks about how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We talk about this good news. Um, there's a type of this, uh, as we come to the New Testament, what does that look like? And I want to go to Romans 10, 14, and 15, because Paul does an excellent job of tying this in. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, right, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preached the good news. We see there in the New Testament, as we look at Romans, like this beautiful picture of what? That the gospel is being shared. It has to be preached. It has to be spoken. And how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We must share the gospel. So through it all, through all of this, what I want you guys to take away is God was in control. Just like in Jonah, he carried out his will in his time. This idea of God's mercy in Jonah and then his sternness in uh, Nahum. So do you see that God is always in control? When you think about your life and you think that things are going crazy or if you look at the news or different things that happen, do you see that God is always control? Can you trust in that? I want you to be able to trust in that. It says, thus says the Lord. So all of this came to pass. So as we have looked at this first chapter in Nahum, um, we have seen God's character revealed beautifully through this poetry. Um, we have seen that he is what? He is jealous. We have seen that he is patient, that he is all-powerful. He is a refuge he is just, right? His justice will be done. And the beautiful thing, and he is sovereign. He is in control of it all. So what is our next step today that I want you to take away? Our next step is do not take God's mercy for granted. Do not take God's mercy for granted. You see this redemption that he gave to the Ninevites. Mercy for granted. hundred years later, God took out his judgment on them. We receive mercy from God that we do not deserve. Not one of us deserve. But this helps us get a full picture of who he is as we look at this. So do not take God's mercy for granted. You know, if you are here today and you do not have a relationship with Christ, if you do not, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, 
He gives us that mercy and that grace that is a gift. And if you're here today and you are a believer, that his mercy is new each and every day. That is a beautiful, beautiful fact. And every day we should go to him and say, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace each and every day because I know I don't deserve it. So we need to find refuge in him, but through his son. So when you see the character of God, you see how much he loves us by what he has done because he sent his son to pay our debt. We don't deserve it, but we can surrender to him. Remember, he gives mercy each and every day. So remember, he is faithful and he is slow to anger. All of these things, if we have gone through this, I want you to remember God's character. That is the reason we have gone through it. He is faithful. He is slow to anger. And we should never take his mercy for granted. And I want you, above everything else, understand his power and who he is and be in awe of it. He will always keep his promises, right? Where you and I fail, we can't keep promises. We can try our hardest. And yes, we keep some, but we fail all the time. God always keeps his promises. And that is the truth that we can count on. He will never, ever fail. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we are just so thankful in who you are. As we have gone through this text, this beautiful text today, we see your character. And Father, we see that you are slow to anger, that you are jealous. And Father, um, we see your love and your great love. But Father, we also want to be in awe of who you are, of who you are as we worship you. You are all-powerful. And Father, we never want to take that for granted. We can see that through your creation, and we can see that through your plan that you have put in place through your son. So Father, I just pray if there is someone here today who has uh, not surrendered their life, Father, I just pray that you draw them close to you. And I just pray that they seek that refuge in you. And Father, for the people here who are already believers, Father, I pray that they just strive to walk each and every day in your mercy and grace. Father, we know that you are a, a God who is in control and you are sovereign and we're so thankful for it. So Father, I just thank, I'm so thankful for this time that we've had together today as we've gone through your word, as we have studied it. And Father, I'm just so thankful for this community that you have given us. And we just want to give you all the praise for it. We want to glorify you in all that we do, Father. So we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.